People take the game of golf pretty seriously. The folks who I know are into it, they're into it. It's like some kind of religion or something. You know, you can know somebody for 20 years and not realize they're an asshole until you play 18 holes of golf with them. That's David Owen. He's a writer, and every once in a while, he writes for The New Yorker. And he also loves golf. I'm a total golf addict. I went overnight from never thinking about it to not thinking about almost anything else. And, you know, it's hard to explain. It rewards you sort of randomly, but just often enough to make you think that if you kept at it, you could get this little squirt of endorphins all the time. In 2012, he had an assignment from Golf Digest to write about another guy who obsesses over golf. At the time, this dude was a mogul of New York real estate. Trump was building a golf course in Scotland, and the piece was going to be about Trump and golf. Trump has always been a golf guy. He's been buying up and building golf courses since the 90s. He even published a book of golf advice and wrote in the introduction, For me and millions of people, men, women, young and old around the world, golf is more than a game. It's a passion. That wasn't supposed to be my Trump impersonation, by the way. <laughs> so our journalist Owen goes to Scotland to check out the new course and to play a couple of games up and down the coast. He doesn't see Trump there, but while he's working on the piece, he gets a call from Trump himself with an invitation to play in Florida and stay at Mar-a-Lago. So Owen flies down to play some rounds with Trump. Now, one thing to note here is that when it comes to the game of golf, Trump has a very peculiar and let's say unorthodox way of playing in a way that his reputation precedes him. I've heard so many stories about him cheating. And it's gone on for years and years. The sports writer Rick Riley, he even wrote a book about the way Trump plays the game. He cheats like a mafia accountant. Like He cheats crazy. He cheats whether you're watching or not. He cheats whether you like it or not. He tried to cheat Tiger Woods in a match. According to Riley and other folks who've played Trump, this guy kicks the ball. He retakes shots. And if he doesn't feel like it, he just decides not to count any foul shots. I feel like that's just being a bit extra. I mean, I thought golf was just supposed to be chill. You know, walk around some pretty green grass and challenge yourself, network with your buddies, do some business deals. But, I mean, golf is a game where it's pretty easy to cheat if you want to. You score yourself, and there are usually no refs walking the course, and there are a whole bunch of ways that allow you to engage in some slickery trickery or to fudge and fib a little bit, which people do. And you think that people cheat because they're not that good at the game and they're trying to get a leg up. But here's the catch. Trump is actually kind of good at golf. He's not a young guy. He's still a really good golfer. And he hits his driver a long way. He hits it straight. I think it's probably true that of all the presidents of the United States, he probably is the best golfer who's ever been the president of the United States. He doesn't even need to cheat. He definitely played better than I did. So Owen plays his game with Trump and suspects that there may be a slick kick here or there. Right, the old foot wedge, yeah. But it's just a casual game. I wouldn't have called him on it because it wasn't the conditions under which we were playing. It was only later when he would read me out for not uh, giving him this number that he wanted. Yep. Trump calls Owen after his article about the golf game goes live. Trump's just screaming at me. He's yelling at me. Oh, you know, you, you reporters are all alike. What he was angry at 
was that I had not said in my article that he had shot 71 when we played golf together. And I'd actually said, I'd complimented his golf game in basically the way I just did with you. But he wanted that number. And the reason I hadn't is he didn't shoot 71. Huh? Why you mad, bro? Is all this yelling and anger necessary? Why does it even matter? He played a good enough game. Shouldn't that be enough? I'm sure you'll be happy to know that this episode is not even really about Trump. That's a whole other story. But what's interesting here, at least to me, is that Trump on the golf course is acting like a lot of people we all know, including ourselves, maybe. You know, the people who do these small cheats when there's nothing to gain, no big stakes, no major acclaim. And I think it matters because the more I looked into this, the more I found that most of us engage in some small-scale deception. And that line between cheating at some things and being a cheater is very fine. In fact, it might not even exist at all. I'm Alzo Slade, and from something else, this is Cheat, a series that asks the question, is it ever okay to break the rules? This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Over the course of doing this podcast, I've learned quite a bit about cheaters. And even though I get to dig into the backstories and motives justifications and excuses there's always that question of why cheat look sometimes i get it there's the money there's the fame the power some people do it to survive others to fake a certain lifestyle there's a range but what isn't clear is why anyone would cheat in a situation that really wouldn't give them any advantage other than to say i want like the former president in a friendly game of golf. It's easier to accept that people cheat to gain something. It's harder to accept that they do it even if there's no true material advantage. Because what does it say about us as a people? So we're doing something a little different this episode. I took these questions to someone who studies ethical decision-making and negotiations, basically a professor of cheating. I became really interested in cheating behavior Meet Wharton professor Reese Schweitzer. So why do people cheat? So that we see, for example, even in amateur sports. So you'll see marathon runners that cut the course only to stand on the platform at the end. There's no money. There's it's you just get bragging rights. I mean, it might not be as extreme as cutting a marathon to win, but most of us no folks who will engage in some small-scale cheating. You know, the, the cousin who might cheat at a family card game. The friend who decides to do some slick shit when they're playing Monopoly. Like, you know you did not have a $500 bill two seconds ago. How did you get that? And sometimes, it could even be you. I know my family is very competitive, so when we go home for the holidays, they're playing dominoes, cards, Scrabble, and I swear my uncle takes a peek at the Scrabble letters as he's pulling them out of the bag, and if he doesn't like them, he'll drop them and pick up some more. It's small scale, but 
Is it cheating or is it not? And somehow, these folks don't mind pissing off their friends or family, selling their reputation or jeopardizing what's supposed to be just some good down-home fun. But first, we got to take a step back. We're going to go back to school for just a minute, you know, so we can define our terms. So, Professor, before we get too far down the road, I think it's important to establish a foundation, right? So what does it mean to cheat? I think cheating can't be judged within a person. So it can't be, you know, Alzo can't decide what is cheating and what's not cheating. I think cheating is a construct that reflects a group or society that has established rules and parameters. So different sports leagues might have different rules. That's fine. But within those sports leagues, people should be abiding by the rules. Or if the rules change. So, you know, are steroids okay or not? We could change the rule. But once we decide what the rules are, we know when somebody has broken those rules. Part of the reason I wanted to talk to Professor Schweitzer is because of this study he did in 2013 about the feeling people have when they cheat. What we found is that in some cases, people experience what we call a cheater's high. That is, after they cheat and get away with it, they actually feel good. There's some thrill or exhilaration. Can you describe this feeling? Is it like, is it a giddiness? Is it like, ooh, yay, hooray, <laughs> you know? Frank Abnegale. Oh, yeah. Catch Me If You Can, right? Right. So yeah. the movie Catch Me If You Can was based on this guy. And he describes this headiness like drinking champagne, this giddiness that he would feel pulling off scams. Or you talk to people who steal cars just to go for joy rides. So people will steal a car, go for a joy ride, and just leave it. You know, we could sit back in our couches and sort of think about it and say, like, oh, that's crazy. Why would you commit a serious felony for a few minutes of fun? That's a bad risk to take. But people feel this headiness, this thrill. Until you had done all of this research, what had been the prevailing opinion about how cheaters felt about their cheating? Are they remorseful? Do they feel guilty? Yes. So the idea was that people felt guilt and other negative emotions. And so that the idea was that emotions were a cost. So I might be tempted to cheat or steal because it benefited me personally, but that was outweighed by like that was holding me back were these negative emotions, sort of consciousness. Negative emotions and then the repercussions. So the probability of getting caught and punished, but that emotions were on the cost side of engaging in cheating. And I think what's so interesting is not only might emotions push people to cheat, so they might push somebody to go shoplift when she totally doesn't need to, They'll push somebody to go do that. And worse than that, that is once people experience that high, like Frank Abigail, like you might repeat it. You might feel like, wow, that was a thrill. I can't wait to go pull off another scam or take another car for a joyride or shoplift again. Is this how we make sense of people cheating in these low stake situations? Because the big cheats kind of, 
make sense if you're trying to get a whole bunch of money or, you know, win an election or something like that. But the small stakes cheats. It's related to something else. And, and it seems to me that it's this cheater's high that kind of drives people to do this, like this compulsive cheating behavior. So the cheater's high is definitely one piece of it. But I think, I think also it's a little more complicated. I mean, I've, I've been very curious about amateur athletes who cheat. It's in some cases a self-image. So sometimes you have coaches or these motivational speakers, like, like people who have built an image around success and are so concerned about falling short that as they put so much pressure on themselves to win, that in their minds, the benefits of winning become so large, they outweigh these costs of you know, how they would feel about cheating and then the likelihood of detection. I think all of us have a desire to feel significant and valued. And I'm wondering if this dishonest behavior or this compulsive cheating behavior, even when you, like you said, there is no monetary reward in the case of the, the marathon runner cutting the course, right? But there is this image in the, the way the world sees me. I need the world to see me in a certain way to feel like I am of value. If you look at A-Rod, he did one interview where he was accused of taking steroids and he denied it flatly. For the record, have you ever used steroids, human growth hormone, or any other performance-enhancing substance? No. And then a second interview where he came clean and admitted that yes, indeed, he had been doing it. And his explanation was... I wanted to prove to everyone that, you know, I was worth, you know, and being one of the greatest players of, of, of all time. And uh, I, did, I did take a banned substance. Yeah, he didn't want to let people down. He had all this pressure to be the best, and that's what he was trying to do. Where, yeah, there was a huge, I think, intrapsychic inside of his own head, as well as externally. That is, the, the external rewards for being the best, being a superstar, those are huge. And in many cases, it's not clear to me that we've calibrated the incentives in the right way. Okay, the professor cleared things up a bit, but I still wanted to know why someone like Trump would want to cheat at a game of golf, something he's actually good at. So first of all, it's, it's terrifically interesting. And yeah, why would somebody like Donald Trump cheat at golf? And there are a few reasons. One is there are some people for whom winning is the top priority. What that means is that other objectives, like playing by the rules, are not the top priority. Those become secondary. So that's the first idea, is that for some people like Donald Trump, who's so win-oriented, winning is more important than other things like playing by the rules. Thinking of yourself as a winner means that you'll do more to maintain that title. And for some folks, being a winner is the only thing that matters. And then there's the role that power plays. When people feel powerful, when people have power, they begin to feel as if the normal rules and constraints don't apply to them. They don't have to wait in line and sit in the back of the airplane. Very powerful people get seated at better tables. They have assistants that do a lot of the stuff that 
everybody else has to do. Powerful people begin to feel like the rules don't apply to them. And powerful people are far more likely to do things that they want, take action, take agency, go ahead and break rules. So that's part of it too, is this sort of, so first this win mentality, second this sense of power. And the third is the cheater's high. But something else happens too. People start to trick themselves. What if you convince yourself that you're cheating isn't really cheating? And at the very beginning of our conversation, I said, like, it can't be internal to you. That is, it can't be an individual that decides what is and what isn't cheating. Because in some people's minds, they may come to believe, like, well, yeah, the way you play is this way. That's how I play. And so it's not cheating in my book. But other people would view it as cheating. And what gets interesting is how fine that line is. Because as you'll soon find out, we all cheat a bit, don't we? More after the break. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, not, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. I remember those websites where you could download music for free, right? Like, I, I did that for a while. And I did the mental and moral gymnastics that convinced me that I was not doing anything wrong. When I would not pay for music, I would justify it and say, you know, well, they're not going to miss my $1.99 for this song that I took. You use this phrase that I love, mental gymnastics, where... We engage in these mental gymnastics to justify our behavior, and it's almost like our autoimmune system, like our white blood cells. Like we have a sort of physical self-defense mechanism to guard against disease. And just like that, we have a psychological self-defense mechanism to guard against feeling bad about ourselves. And when there's some threat, you're like, hey, yeah, I'm kind of tempted to download music. And we think, well, look, there's no cost, nobody's harmed. The ability for us to justify our unethical behavior is incredible. We sort of minimize the harm. We put it out of our minds. We think about it as, well, everybody else is doing it. We derogate the person that we've harmed. So we say, look, you know, oh, those insurance companies, they overcharge people or they deny people's claims. We engage in a series of things, these mental gymnastics, to make ourselves feel like, hey, that was totally fine. I am, when I go to bed at night, a good person. Okay, shoplifting, for an example, or hacking a computer system of some sort. Like, those things, it seems like you can feel okay about them or have that cheater's high because it's an institution that you can say you are stealing from. Like you can see it in the abstract, right? But then 
do you still feel that same high when you are directly affecting the lives of real people? So you stealing a car or stealing a purse. Is it is it the same high across the spectrum? The target is definitely a huge moderator that it changes the effect. So if you say, oh yeah, there's an old lady and a $10 bill is hanging out of her purse, you could take it. Most people would feel, oh man, I would feel terrible taking that $10 from this person that I see in front of me. Committing insurance fraud, however, fraud is rampant. People feel fine. And the reality is, you know, who's the victim of that? Well, the insurance companies have to pass along these higher costs. They spend a lot of money trying to investigate fraud. So somebody's paying for it, and it's everybody who pays insurance. So how you interpret the rules can determine how you feel about if you cheated or not, right? Some people say that there are moral absolutes, like one of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not kill. That is pretty direct, Professor, thou shalt not kill. But then people will kill a roach in their house, they'll kill a mouse. And I guess the question is, even though you say you can't internally define what cheating is, but externally, can you interpret the rules in a way that you can say to yourself, I'm not cheating? So you take your first shot off the tee. Yeah, we went back to the golf course again for this explanation. If you don't like that one, you could take a second one, uh, this sort of do-over. And what I think is sort of nice about this in this sort of mental gymnastics is what we're saying is like, well, that first one, that was a practice one. We're not counting that one. It really starts now with my second one. And so we could justify to ourselves saying, hey, you know what? I am playing one ball the whole way through this hole. You know, that first one I've put into a different mental account, a different mental bucket, and I've thrown that one aside. And in my mind, I've now constructed how I am playing by the rules. It's one ball I've hit throughout the whole way. When, if we were to objectively step back, you're saying like, well, if that first shot was great, you would have played that one. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm glad you went back to the, the golf analogy because we talked to a golfer who said that the game can sort of lend itself to, to cheating because of the scoring system. And so if a situation allows more leeway to kind of fudge the score or the results, does that inspire more cheating? Do you think people are more likely to cheat if it doesn't require a lot of effort? And then, incidentally, does that generate a cheater's high in that case? I think you get more of a cheater's high when you've been clever in outsmarting the system. When there was a system designed to check you and you outsmarted it. Imagine somebody playing golf by themselves and they're just out there by themselves scoring their own play. And that person who, you know, they take eight hits on a particular hole and they write down five. I think that person isn't going to feel particularly clever, right? Because like, uh, you know, who am I outsmarting? Nobody. I've outsmarted nobody. Now that's cheating. I mean, at least you're like, you, you come home and your buddies say, how did, you know, <laughs> how many hits did it take you? And you misreport it. Ah, oh, that's just lying. So the real thrill comes from outsmarting people, from tricking the system. But our whole society is based on common agreements and rules. 
which seems to suggest that as long as there's something to gain or a thrill to feel, people will keep on cheating, and sometimes in really obvious ways. In the case of Trump, he's not a bad golfer. But, you know, I've read stories of, <laughs> like, he's he's always the first one to tee off. And like, he'll be playing with three or four other people. And as soon as he hits the ball off the tee, he's in this cart. And he's off. And so, you know, to figure out where his ball is and to kick it onto the green or throw it onto the green. So how do you factor in the blatant disregard for detection when cheating? So partly it's a sense of power. He has had so much power for so long and people are not giving him good feedback. So his golf buddies aren't saying, hey, knock it off, don't do that, or I'm not going to play with you again. Because he's so powerful, the people that he has with him are going to play with him no matter what. Where, where I'm from, we call it, you surround yourself with people that tell you that your shit doesn't stink. <laughs> so I think that's the technical term. The, yeah, he's enjoyed that experience for such a long time. He's become really miscalibrated and he's able to say lies like I won the election and just keep repeating it. And so, for example, if you tell a lie over and over and over again, there's a scholar, Dan Efron, who's showed that it seems less bad. It seems less immoral when the lie has been repeated so many times and you say it again. So, so he, he's figured out a few key pieces of this persuasion puzzle. Him, meaning Trump. So that he'll do bald-faced things where if anybody else did them, it's completely unacceptable. I mean, so, so for example, like he'll, he'll drive the golf cart right up on the green where people are putting. And one golfer like described, it's like drive, driving your car up on the church steps. Like, you just don't do that. Okay, see, this is the thing. When you allow the small cheating to happen, that's where you kind of messed up. Because these small cheats are just a short distance to the big ones. And one of the problems is, is that we look at somebody like Trump and we distance ourselves from that level of dishonesty and cheating and say, well, I'd never do that. That's despicable. I'm, I don't, I'm not dishonest like that. And rightfully so. But with a quick self-analysis, we'll recognize that all of us engage in some level of deception in our daily lives. It could be just as small as you complimenting your friend on how good they look in a pair of jeans when you know the jeans look like trash on them. And the next thing you know, now that person has gone out and bought a pair of those jeans in every color because they think they really look good on them. But is that cheating? We talk a lot on this podcast about cheating scandals. And you hear scandal, it seems to be large in scale. But from your perspective, what are some of the things that people do on a regular basis that you would consider to be cheating that we would just consider to be part of our regular lives? Yeah. What, what do people do that sort of garden variety cheating? So people cheating on their expense reports, people cheating on their tax returns. But even outside of that, when people think of cheating, they're like, well, I don't, I'm not a cheater. I don't do that. Right. I don't, I don't do that. Right. And so I, I guess what I'm asking is, 
for those of us who are standing on the outside listening to a podcast called Cheat, and we're entertained by it, by the stories of other people cheating, right? Give us a window into ourselves and tell us ways in which we are probably cheating and breaking rules and we don't even realize it. Or maybe we do and we just, you know, kind of brush it off. So, Professor, in what ways do you cheat, sir? (laughs) Do I cheat? Um, You know, on my diet. Mm. But, um, Mm -hmm. but, you know, but but that's all sort of interesting. That's like, like to yourself. I think, you know, cheating is a high bar. I think people engage in deception all the time. So misrepresenting the truth, that happens all the time. And I think if people were to audit themselves quite carefully, they would find that they, they lie several times a day. And not always in purely self-enhancing ways. But, but I think the sort of cheating that we think about, like did somebody cheat on a test? Did somebody you know, cheat on a form? Did they cheat when they traded in their car? You know, that kind of thing that happens... But fortunately, it's not the quotidian, everyday experience for most people. And yet, it's common enough because we do have stories every week for you on this podcast of people cheating in some capacity. We want to be very careful. What message are we sending? Are we sending an expectation of behavior? And is that system really secure? Or are we just inviting people to try to to break it? I mean, think about it. We still recognize and honor a lot of cheaters. From statues of Christopher Columbus, who still has a holiday, to athletes in the Hall of Fame, who still have fans and endorsements. If you want to be a pro baseball player, I'm not sure we're sending the message that you definitely don't want to take steroids. Or or like the, the Olympics, like the message we sent to Olympic athletes, like the Russians, like, hey, Yeah, widespread doping. Yeah, we don't think it's good, but I don't know the costs and likely detection. Maybe, maybe they're not that that big. I grew up being taught in church that a sin is a sin, a lie is a lie, and I guess you can extrapolate from that that a cheat is a cheat. It's meant to convey that there are no levels or degrees when it comes to immorality. It is just what it is. But I'm not so sure it's that simple. I suppose it's clear that if you break the rules to gain an advantage, then you're a cheat. But we also revel in this notion that rules are meant to be broken. We feel a certain joy when we've gotten over on the system. You know, you get two of what you ordered in the mail by mistake, and you don't send one back. You fudge a bit on your taxes. You lie so as not to hurt someone's feelings or to make yourself feel better. Doesn't seem that big of a deal when the thing that you're cheating is an abstraction like a big company or a corrupt institution. It's almost like they deserve it. But things start to get a little heavier when real people are the direct victims of your deceit. In this case, we start tapping into our selfishness and a suspension of compassion, and we justify it through these clever mental gymnastics to make us feel good about what we're doing. So... Maybe there are levels to this cheating thing. Since it seems like all of us do it, let's just hope most of us are the low-level, low-stakes cheats. Because otherwise, we might just be hearing you on one of these episodes of this podcast. 
Oh oh. Hey folks, thanks for listening. Just a reminder to follow Cheat wherever you get it. And please do leave a rating and a review if you like what we're doing. It helps other people discover the show. And of course, we want more listeners. Also, if you want to listen to the show without the ads, you can subscribe to Cheat Plus. It's like Cheat, but better. It's just $2.99 a month, or if you're in the UK, £2.49. And you get all of this without having to listen to those annoying commercials. Just go to Apple Podcasts and hit subscribe instead of follow. You can try it for free now. Next time on Cheat. Extreme weather has happened before, will happen again. There's nothing that anybody is going to do that is going to change the weather. Climate Gate was just sort of a convenient validation of what we had been saying for everybody to see. Cheat is written and presented by me, Alzo Slade. The producer for this episode is Julia Doyle. The executive producers are Lizzie Jacobs and Tom Koenig. The series editor is Joe Sykes. The original idea for this show was developed by Tom Fuller. Engineering, sound design, and scoring by Martin Peralta. Our design and visual team is Emma Lansdowne and Sarah De La Rue. Special thanks to Steve Ackerman, Mark Rivers, Peggy Sutton, and Ella McLeod.